Welcome to episode 5 of the Analytics FC podcast with me, Tom Warville. Uh, with me this week, I've got Sam Gregory and our guest is Dan Altman. Hey guys. Hey, how's it going? Not bad. How are you? Good, good. Dan, as most of you know, is uh, an economist, um, has his own sort of analytics consultancy, which is um, North Yard Analytics. So one of the sort of fewer consultancies uh, in the area that are specialising uh, in analytics with football clubs. Um, so yeah, Dan, do you want to add something to that? Yeah, I mean, I've certainly been uh, banding about ideas for soccer or football analytics for for several years, but it was really only in the past couple of the year of years that I decided to professionalize it. And uh, you know, so far the results have been good. It's been great to work with uh, several different teams and a couple of other types of clients as well. Uh, I think that it's a growing area. Uh, it's sort of virgin territory in many ways, which means it's easy to do interesting work, but at the same time, it's going to take a little bit more for a lot of clubs to feel that they have a demand for this kind of work as well. You had an interesting piece recently, which I think sort of feeds into this idea of the, the demand problem, that clubs aren't really jumping on this new type of analysis, and it was called Analytics in the Market for Lemons. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of the controversy that came out after you wrote the piece? Sure. I mean... The name comes from a classical economics example from George Akerlof, who's a Nobel laureate in economics. Uh, He was interested in what happened when buyers and sellers in markets had different levels of information about the products that they were transacting. And he essentially used the used car market as his example. Uh, The idea being that the sellers of used cars know very well how good the cars are, but the buyers don't. And it's impossible for the sellers to verify to the buyers just how good the car is. So the buyer always thinks that there's some chance that the used car is going to be a lemon. And as a result of that, the buyer is never going to pay the actual value of the car because there's uncertainty attached to the purchase. And that means that the sellers may decide not to sell the car if the car has the same value to them. And then the market collapses. Uh, This is potentially a problem in analytics, too, because the buyers are the clubs and leagues and others, uh, and they're really not sure yet just how valuable this stuff is. So even if you're selling analytics that's pretty good, uh, if you can't verify to the clubs how good it is, especially if they don't have people with a statistical background at the club who can sort of check your work, uh, then you may not be able to sell anything at all. Uh, And as I pointed out, one of the... The problem is that there might be people selling who think that they have good stuff, but actually they're selling lemons because they don't actually have the statistical expertise to tell the two apart. Now, there was kind of an outcry after this because a lot of the so-called fanalists, the people who do this stuff as a hobby, thought I was talking about them. And it was probably because I had uh, dropped a little criticism of one fanalist piece the same day that I published this piece, The Market for Lemons. Uh, that was a coincidence. I'd been working on the piece for a while. But uh, I wasn't really talking about the fan list at all. I think it's great that people spend their time uh, working on this stuff, and I always get interesting ideas when I read the fan list do as well. But I've seen presentations and uh, other deliverables produced by other professionals, and uh, some of it doesn't stand up to basic statistical scrutiny. So uh, there are definitely some lemons out there in the market in which uh, my firm is trying to play. Now, in economics, usually the solution to imperfect information is signaling, some form of saying that will help, in this case, that will help the club and that is useful. How do you think in analytics we're going to deal with this idea of signaling? Like, what is the best way of saying to clubs, 
I have something useful and this is how I can show you without actually being hired or without working for you that what I have to sell is actually a useful thing. Right. You have to be able to send a signal that only someone who did good work could send. That's, that's what the signaling example is in, in game theory. And there are various ways to do it. One is to build up a reputation. You say, oh, I've worked for all of these clubs and they're happy with my work and so you should hire me as well. Uh, another is to show that you've been right many times, which means publishing your work, as I did uh, on the OptiPro blog earlier this week, uh, and, and showing people that the predictions you make turn out to be correct. Uh, another is sort of a certification process where you certify yourself either by showing that you have advanced degrees in econometrics or statistics, that you actually know what you're talking about, and they should trust you even though they haven't seen your work, or that somebody else has sort of given your work the good housekeeping seal of approval. Uh, we don't really have an authority in soccer analytics at this point that could do the latter, uh, but uh, maybe the former can help you to get at least part of the way. And the question that we had from Twitter, which I feel ties quite nicely into what we're discussing at the moment, um, about um, how far are clubs away from allowing a medium for fan lists to enter, um, sorry, to either pre present or propose ideas to them. Do you feel that that's, that's only ever going to happen if they have this, say, statistical understanding and they're not, to put it in your wording, selling lemons? Uh, and in terms of they're actually understanding what they're giving to clubs and the clubs believe that they're selling the actual product? Yeah, I mean, I think the fan lists who might find channels to get their work in front of big clubs would face the same challenges as other people trying to sell analytics. Uh, you know, they'd have to overcome this uh, market for lemons somehow. But that's not to say that clubs aren't interested. I posted on my North Yard Analytics blog recently uh, a chat that I had with Jose Angel Sanchez, the director general of Real Madrid. Uh, Real Madrid, with Microsoft, is launching a huge uh, app for their fans that allows them to look at perhaps 250 different streams of match data and interact with the team in various ways. Uh, and, and part of the future of that is to be able to crowdsource analytics from that app. They want to be able to put the data in a repository where fans can use it however they like, and then they'll be able to see the products of the fans' work. Uh, it's going to take a long time, I think, for them to get there, but this app is the first step. And the question then is, who's going to be the monitor who looks at this stuff and decides what's worth following up on and what's not? A lot of the, thing, the problems that fanalists bring up in terms of doing analytics is the data issue, which is, where do I get my data from? How can I get good quality data, firstly, and data that sort of spans a wide variety of problems? What would you suggest to sort of solve this data problem? What kind of data do you think these fanalists should be looking for that might be simpler data to get and that still hasn't really been explored. You know, I think even the most basic data hasn't been used to its full potential. I still get ideas every once in a while for how to use just the basic information in the table. Uh, the goal difference and uh, goals for and, for and against, home and away, stuff like that. Uh, some of my earliest stuff used that information, and some of my recent stuff did too, like looking at whether managers were lucky. You know, did their goal difference reflect the points that they had or did they somehow overachieve by getting goals at the right time? I even did a piece looking at how you could evaluate the quality of a league just by the age profile of the players in it. 
So these are basic bits of data that are easy to collect off online sources, and you can get a lot of, out of them, I think, and there's still plenty to do. So it may be challenging, but I think that the brighter fan lists are going to find ways to do that. Uh, that said, you know, fan lists have found other ways to get their hands on data, whether it's scraping websites who get their data from Opta or Prozone or other big providers, or using the data that other websites create, such as who scored and its player ratings. You know, there, there are lots of things you can do. Transfer Market is another great source for performance data and for valuations of players. So I think that there's still a lot before we can say that public data sources have been exhausted. Now, whether there's going to be a step where a league or a club says, all right, we want to make some of the more advanced data available for fans because we think it'll help us to grow our league or to get interesting insights. I think that's something that might happen in the future, but it's going to require these data collectors to change their business model because right now they keep the data very closely held and they try to sell it to as many people as possible. Uh, if they move towards more of a services model where they're showing you what you can do with the data and trying to create sort of industry standard metrics, then they might actually be more likely to release the data to the public in some form. But like I said, I think we're a ways away from that. And one of the sort of key things you wanted to discuss uh, here was um, the challenges of using different data. Is that in terms of, with some sports, you get a lot of data and not all of it's going to be meaningful. And is that the sort of thing you mean with football? Say, um, an example would be, I started trying to collect the hockey assists in MLS, so essentially the pass before the actual assist. Um, and there was some backlash in terms of people thinking that this isn't an actually a good indicator of performance because it's not that highly correlated to wins or goals scored, and it's more down to luck. So, in terms of you know the challenges of using data, is it? Are we look? Is that sorry? Is that in terms of looking at the wrong things or? just in terms of actually untangling the data and finding meaningful answers in what we already have? You know, we're always going to look at the wrong things sometimes. I mean, I, I've been down plenty of rabbit holes where I haven't found anything at the bottom. Uh, goalkeeper statistics are a good example of that. There are lots of things you could look at about goalkeepers, and only some of them seem to be meaningful or repeatable. Uh, but goalkeepers are fascinating, so I continue to look at them with as much data as I can bring to bear. Uh, my... Concern, I think, is more about uh, getting data sources to fit together. Uh, we have data from Opta, which is wonderful because of its broad coverage. You know, you're covering more than 30 leagues and divisions around the world in exactly the same format, uh, but you're only getting on-the-ball data, so you miss out some of the things that might help you to gauge defensive pressure and other factors that are happening on the field, uh, decoys on attacks, things like that. Uh, you know, we would love to be able to see that too, uh, but we can't because tracking data is usually collected on a proprietary basis by clubs that install cameras and things like that in their stadiums. Uh, so even the ProZone data, which is collected by a lot of clubs in their stadiums, is really only accessible to them for their own team and what happens in their own stadiums. Um, you know, there may be a shift now coming with the track ab data that the Premier League is collecting. Uh, there's also been a collection of tracking data in the Bundesliga for some time. If these get coordinated with coded event data, that is data that someone has actually taken the time to say that's a pass, that's a shot, that's a tackle, then we, I think, are in a new world where we can do a lot more work. 
Um, Prozone already has this capacity with its own data, but like I said, you don't have the coverage and you don't have the ability necessarily to look at other teams when they're not playing your own team. So if we do get a sort of nexus of OptiData and track app data where we have event and tracking uh, all in one package, that'll be great. Uh, problem is that the track app data is extremely messy. You're supposed to be tracking uh, you know, 22 players on the field plus the ball and the referee, even the linesman, any moving object basically, and sometimes they just disappear or sometimes they inexplicably go to one corner and stay there for a while. Um, it's, it makes it quite difficult, uh, and, and, and when it's not coded at all, you have to do things like trying to figure out when the kickoff was uh, or when a goal is scored, and, and you come up with some pretty uh, interesting algorithms for that. But these are challenges that data analysts probably shouldn't have to waste their time doing. You know, We would want these data to be packaged in a way where they're somewhat clean and, and coded reliably. So that, again, is probably a year or two off. Uh, unless you have to do it on a proprietary basis for a client. A sort of, sort of follow-up from that would be, do you sort of see the integration of on-field data and this track app tracking data as the sort of uh, end game in terms of, you know, where we, as far as we're going to get with analytics? Because I know with, um, with baseball, they sort of seem to have hit a peak where you've now got tracking data and people are trying to start to create sort of Markov chain-style algorithms to look at expected points added and, and statistics like this. Do you think that's the sort of next evolutionary step in terms of what sort of pioneers in football data like yourself um, can do with this stuff? Or do you think that there's a level beyond that? You know, if it's an end game, it's really far away. Like I said, we haven't even exploited the most basic statistics fully. So if we were to get that sort of golden chalice with the event data and the tracking data all in one package, uh, it would be decades before we had fully exploited it. So I'm not worried about that. Uh, I think that what we're looking for here is a way to uh, meaningfully encapsulate what happens on the field. Uh, and that way that we do it has to be accessible to the people who might use the analytics as well. And that's where we might see a bit of a bottleneck because... Once you get all that tracking data, and you can get a sense of what's possible with it if you watch some of the presentations coming out from Prozone uh, with Paul Power and others, you, know, you start to use some very advanced mathematical tools. At the end of my Opta presentation, uh, I did use something a little bit advanced called the kernels of star-shaped spaces to show what might be advantageous areas to pass into. Um, you know, that, that's not something that you learn in uh, high school mathematics. Uh, unless you go to an extremely good high school and you're also very bright. <laughs> but, uh, but I think that uh, you, you, once we get to that point where we're using higher math, I think that some of the coaches and team executives might kind of shut off a little bit because if they can't understand something, then how are they going to implement it and how are they going to evaluate whether it's worthwhile? Uh, they, you're just asking them to take your word for it. And so I think that we may hit a point where the math is going faster than our ability to explain it, and and that's where the bottleneck will be. It's interesting you were you coming from an economics background, which is the same actually as Tom and myself. But there is this sort of broad base in analytics. You have computer scientists, you have math majors. I've seen physics guys. You've seen hobbyists just take it up. I think while well, Will is a uh, atmospheric scientist, so we have quite a broad sort of background of statistical literacy coming into this. 
what specifically do you think from economics we can take out of this? I know you've talked about shapely values a lot. Are there any other topics that you think we can take out of economics and bring into soccer analytics? So first I would say that that diversity that you're talking about is absolutely fantastic. Um, we get some of the best ideas when we cross laterally from field to field, when we try and blend different disciplines together. That's when we get really powerful stuff. So I'm glad to be a part of that, and I think it's wonderful that we have people from so many different fields who are bringing their tools to bear in, in, in soccer analytics. It makes it much richer. Um, what I would say about economics is, I think that we have, through our practice always of doing constrained optimization, which means sort of trying to do the best you can subject to some restriction that's placed on you, whether it's a budget or a time limit, uh, that, that way of thinking is very useful for soccer analytics because it translates directly into what a team is trying to do whether its objective is to make the most profit possible, which seems like what my team, Newcastle, is often doing, or whether it's to finish first in the table no matter what the cost is, which is what people thought that Chelsea under Roman Abramovich and, and Manchester City uh, uh, more recently have tried to do as well. So, you know, if you can specify the objectives in a mathematical way and you can specify the constraints in a mathematical way, you can use this very powerful tool to make better decisions. And what I have tried to do is to take the evaluation of players' performance and team performance and try and feed it into the club performance as a whole in terms of their finances, in terms of their long-term planning, and the reaching of those objectives. So some of the early stuff that I did for Bloomberg Sports was looking at the value of a goal uh, conceded or scored to try and see, well, if we predict that a player will add a certain number of goals scored or subtract a certain number of goals conceded, how much will that be worth to the team in the long term? Uh, and because ultimately the team has to decide how much to pay this player and how much to pay in transfer fee if necessary as well. So we want to be able to do this kind of cost-benefit analysis. And uh, you know, there may not be that many clubs that are thinking about these decisions from a cost-benefit analysis point of view formally, but I can bet that there's certainly a lot who are doing it informally. Now, what you're sort of talking about there, I think, sort of behind the lines is uh, shapely values and the idea of trying to disentangle sort of these individual player effects from team effects. Can you talk about how you've used shapely values in the past and how you think they're, why you think they're useful in football? Uh, you may have stolen the march on me if it's really shapely values. I learned it as shapely values, so I'm going to call them shapely values. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I had a Swedish professor, so who knows what his pronunciation was. Um, the, uh, the, the shapely values for me were, were just one more way to try and get a handle on players' performance. Uh, I don't bring it out as my sort of trademark or, or number one metric, uh, but it's one thing that I like to look at. I uh, can't use it for all sorts of players necessarily because you really need them to play about a thousand minutes to get reliable figures and you really want to see them over a whole season so that they are on the field in conjunction with other different groups of players, not always the same players. Um, as you would know with plus minus or any other with or without you kind of rating, if you always play with the same other players, it's impossible to disentangle your influence for that, from that of the other players uh, who always accompany you. So, you know, what are they really for? Well, as, as I've written on my blog, uh, they're an agnostic metric, and, and they don't specify how 
makes contributions to the team. They just try and figure out how well the team does when that player's on the field. What is the marginal contribution? What's pivotal about that player? And the idea behind them is to ask the right questions. You know, if, if you see a player who you think is a scrub, but he turns, to have, turns out to have a great Shapley value, then it's time to sort of ask his teammates and look at the video and try and figure out what it is that he does so well. And there are examples of this from other sports. Shane Battier had a whole piece done about him in the New York Times Magazine because he was that kind of player. He didn't have the great statistics, but he made teams win. And so you know, he would have had a high Shackley value, and you would have looked at that and said, geez, why, why is Shane so useful to our team? Let's try and find out. Uh, another player that we've heard this about recently is Tim Sparv, the midfielder for FC Midtjylland, which is the new Danish champions with their uh, analytics-focused approach. And, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't looked at his statistics in detail, but they say that he doesn't have big numbers, but he makes the team win. So, again, you would expect to see a higher Shapley value for him. Uh, I tend to combine the Shapley value, which, as I said, is, is an agnostic measure, with mechanistic measures that actually evaluate players based on their actions, their passes, their shots, etc. Because then we get both sides of the coin. We say, this is as much as we can tell you about the player using their actual actions, and then we have the Shapley value to see if there's something intangible that we're not capturing. Do you have any examples from the season just gone of players which the media sort of overlooks in terms of good performers on the pitch when looking at Shapley values? Um, and that's well, if you want to disclose them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, there are definitely some players who in the past have shown up as doing really well and contributing a lot on bad teams. Uh, the one that pops into my mind right away, and, and this is in data you can actually access on my website, is uh, Park Ji Sung, the, the midfielder from Korea who played for Manchester United for several years and then went to Queen's Park Rangers. Uh, and in the season when Queen's Park Rangers were first relegated before they came back up, uh, he, you know, it, obviously they had a terrible season, they were relegated, but his Shapley value was still quite high. Every time he was on the field, he made a great contribution. Uh, and if you had had 11 players of his quality on the field, they would have finished much higher up the table, probably in the European uh, places. So you know, if you looked at his mechanistic values, you know, it's not going to look that great because you can't make a lot of assists or you can't score a lot of goals if your teammates are lousy. But the fact is that he still made a difference to that team, that that team's goal difference overall was better when he was on the field. So his mechanistic metrics might not have looked that good, but the Shapley value still picked up that he was making a big contribution. It, it seems weird. It always seems these sort of very, like you say, quiet stats players um, who seem to pull up the, the score of the rest of the team. My, from reading quite a lot of basketball recently, one of the arguments against that is because you're playing a smaller number of teammates, but still, say with football, you are sort of a, a passenger in a, in a winning side. So say you have the, this Barcelona team that just won the uh, Champions League and you stick in a League 2 footballer from the UK. Would you, do you, would Shapley Values pull out that difference and show that he's not actually adding to the team and he's just essentially free-riding on a team of world-class players? Or will it, is it... So are team effects sort of entangled in that rating overall? Yeah, I mean, you definitely would see that, actually. Uh, the Shapley values are particularly good for that. You can see on a certain team, you know, even 
a title-winning team like Chelsea in, in the most recent season, the percentiles of their Shapley values have a range of about 24 percentiles. So you have players from the very top all the way down to the 76 percentile on that team. Uh, if you had a real passenger, then he'd probably show up even lower. But I don't think Chelsea at the moment is carrying any League Two players, <laughs> unless you want to tell me who they are. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, you you would probably see that here. You know, there have definitely been cases in the past where people have accused certain players of being passengers. I, I can remember at Manchester United when Tom Cleverley got a lot of flack, or when Alexander Butner got a lot of flack. Um, you know, these guys have actually gone on to be successful at other teams uh, when they've been able to avoid injury and get playing time. Uh, so I think that, that we tend to dismiss people based on form and, and, and what we see on the screen, especially if it's not that easy on the eyes. So there's a certain amount of scoreboard journalism there, scoreboard analytics. Uh, but yeah, you would see someone stick out like a sore thumb just the way Park Ji Sung stuck out as not a QPR player. You talked a little bit about sort of there being two realms of, uh, two ways of looking at the problem of football. One is trying to maximize profit and the other maximize points in a table. Do you think there's sort of more potential in boardrooms to use economic thinking than's being done right now? Less sort of on the field, let's change our approach ways and more long-term thinking. How do we change, how do we optimize our current situation from a boardroom perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of scope for that now, especially given some of the people who are owning the clubs. We see more people coming from finance and big business uh, who aren't necessarily just folks who got came by their money through family or, or, or had a small enterprise, but actually are used to thinking in terms of these multi-year plans. And that may be why we're seeing more clubs move fairly quickly up the divisions towards the higher divisions because they're building on this uh, philosophy of continuous improvement and they're always optimizing their budget at each step. Certainly when I present some of these uh, numbers on how much players might be worth, uh, how much their performance on the field might translate into a bottom line for a club, I do it usually with a five-year time horizon. So we're actually discounting the revenue that they they might bring in into the future uh, because I hope that clubs will take that point of view. Now, all of that said, there are definitely some clubs owned by people with that kind of background that are not run that way, and deliberately so. Uh, I, I know one such owner uh, whose club I won't mention who uh, is fairly superstitious and also is some, perhaps a little intimidated by his manager. Uh, so he basically lets the manager run the team and tries to stay out of it as much as he can and, and just goes and uh, receives the laurels when he can. So, uh, you know, on the other hand, there are some uh, folks who run hedge funds who, who, who take a much stronger hand with the team and uh, uh, really have a no-bullshit approach to how it's run, and they're looking towards financial targets as well as performance targets for the future. So there's a huge diversity, uh, even with people of similar backgrounds. And I, you know, I think that the, the, the asset that analytics really can present to them is a way to give some rigor to their long-term planning. And I hope that more teams will adopt it in large part because it will be better for the fans. You know, we, we, we won't have the instability of clubs going under as often. Uh, we'll have clubs that are hopefully using their budgets more intelligently and uh, using the financial instruments that are available to them to uh, smooth their path a little bit. 
Now, shifting the focus to your guest blog on the uh, Opta Pro blog this week, it's a really interesting piece essentially looking at the, the top Premier League prospects um, and specifically this season's. Can you tell us more about that and, and more specifically the sort of models you use? Because I know you've used two models in the creation of this post. Yeah, so uh, as I said earlier, I, I wanted to sort of tie my colors to the mast and, and make some predictions so that if they turned out to be correct, I would hopefully have even a little bit more credibility with potential clients. And uh, uh, this is one way to, to try and spot the top prospects in the Premier League. Uh, I didn't want to show my entire hand, but I wanted to show a couple of things that I can do, so I used two models here. One is a shots-based model that tracks players' contributions to shots, whether it's for their own team or for the opposing team. Uh, and by opposing team, I mean when they sort of let link-up play happen and let shots happen uh, in their defensive zones of responsibility. And the other model is one that is based on some of the work that I showed at the Opta Pro Forum in February, which is looking at how players advance the ball into progressively more dangerous zones for scoring. And the flip side of that on defense is allowing the other team to do the same thing. So these are the uh, sort of inputs into looking at top prospects for me. And then from there, it was a point, you know, I could easily rank the players in these two models. And the question was just where are you going to draw the cutoffs? So I decided to look for players who were 20 or younger on the 1st of August of the season that began. And then I decided to uh, make some arbitrary cutoffs until the group sort of looked like it was selecting the right players from previous seasons. And then I would be feel comfortable selecting the players from the most recent season. Now, between this and your OptiPro forum, you've done a lot of stuff that doesn't involve shots. And analytics seems to be very focused on shots right now shot quality, number of shots, and all of that. And you've talked a lot about zone entries, moving the ball up and down the pitch. What advantages do you think this model has over the shots-based model, and why is it better to use in some situations? Well, there are several advantages. Uh, you're just trying to measure a different aspect of the game. You know, and I think the more aspects you can measure, the better picture you're going to get. Uh, I, I, don't, I wouldn't reject shots entirely, but I think we need complements for that as well. The, some of the advantages of a zone-based model are that you can give credit for advancing zones uh, based on anything that results in a goal, whether it's a shot that results in a goal or a penalty or an own goal. You know, when you get the ball in certain areas, good things happen. And so you don't have to specify what those good things are in order to assess how important it is to move from zone to zone. Uh, another thing is that it doesn't necessarily require you to have a great shooter or a great finisher on the team to appreciate the play of the other folks on the field. You know, uh, let's say you have someone who's always muffing his shots, uh, you know, or, or can't even get a shot off because he's not very good at hold-up play, or he's you know he's he's not strong enough. If you're a midfielder on that team, chances are you're not going to get a lot of credit in most models because uh, hey, you know, the guy's not shooting. There are no goals, no assists, but. That shouldn't necessarily be the case if the midfielder is doing a great job advancing the ball into dangerous areas, and a zone-based model is going to pick that up as well. Now, as a United fan, I saw this and got kind of excited that for your 2014-15 prospects, you had both Tyler Blackett and Patty McNair as guys to watch, and I'm wondering if you could elaborate at all about what the model liked about these guys. 
these guys uh, did better on the shot-based model, actually, than the zone-based model. Uh, and that's something that's fairly common for younger players. Uh, and I think that's perhaps because uh, they're relied upon more to um, push the ball uh, forward and, in fact, perhaps even take shots in uh, corners and set-piece situations. So uh, th- and, and more relied on in that sense than in the sense of doing the grunt work of distributing and advancing the ball. You know, if you think about how United were playing, if uh, Chris Smalling was on the field uh, or Phil Jones was on the field, chances are one of them was doing the distribution while uh, McNair or Blackett was uh, just sort of you know, minding his area. Uh, but if it came time for a set piece, then you know that those guys were going to be in the box trying to do a flick or maybe even take the shot themselves uh, because they have the height and the skill to do that. So, you know, it's something that's fairly common for younger players to see this, but uh, these players do tend to develop those other skills and they eventually get that responsibility as well. Uh, Smalling was one who actually did very well on both of those early on. You know, he's a guy who uh, is close to one standard deviation above the mean, even at 20 years old in both of those areas. So, uh, you know, we'd, we'd hope that they would pick this up too. Uh, but yeah, you know, if you look at the different clubs and the players that have listed as top prospects, uh, United seems to produce good center backs, and uh, you know maybe Liverpool produces good attacking midfielders. Uh, but uh, there's definitely an interesting thing to note there. And going back to the point about Liverpool's attacking midfielders, it sort of serves as some good news on a relatively bleak season that you know Jordan Ibe and Lazar Markovic are actually thought of as good prospects. I think more the, the latter with Markovic not exactly setting the league on fire as most Liverpool fans expect in a in a first season of a £20 million 20-year-old. But um, it definitely sort of positive going forward that considering the history of this of the model and the results you've got, they're not exactly, you know, they're not really going to be flops, hopefully not anyway, for your model's sake. Um, do you feel like you could tweak it at all? Or do you think that in terms of where it's at now, you've had four pretty good seasons of predictions. Do you think that this is something you're going to be using more often, or is it just purely for this blog post and then it's going to become a product for your business, as it were? Well, uh, one thing I would say about Markovic is, uh, you know, he, he he does show up pretty favorably on this model. Um, you know, he played almost a thousand minutes, so we have pretty good data on him. And yeah, you know, maybe he didn't set Liverpool fans' hearts on fire because uh, if he was taking shots, he was missing, or if he was passing the ball, it wasn't necessarily resulting in a shot. Um, but you know, the thing about it is hopefully the model's seeing things that aren't necessarily apparent to the eye and picking up the things that are markers for a future star. Uh, you know, Jordan Ibe, obviously, towards the end of the season, got a lot of attention, seemed to be doing good things on the field, uh, and the model reflects that too. But uh, we would hope that the model would add a little more information than what the eye can see. As far as what I'm going to do with this, well, like I said, uh, this is using two models and uh, for a really detailed search or for recruiting or other purposes, I'd probably use more tools than these two. Uh, but uh, I think I want to sit back and see what happens with these. You know, I, I, I would love to have uh, the opportunity to do uh, recruiting work for more clubs and uh, looking at other leagues besides the Premier League. But because the Premier League is well-known, I thought it was a good place to start uh, to show people uh, some results with players whose names they knew. From there, I said, once you trust 
that the models work well, you can take it to a league that perhaps you don't know as well. Now you, sort of, you just touched on this, the idea of looking at these players. If you watch the Premier League closely, I think a lot of people would have been high on Bellerin, high on Grealish, high on Ibe, just by watching games and closely following the Premier League, regardless of looking at the numbers. Is that sort of the idea of this, is to get people's trust on board first and say, look, your, your eyes are right in these situations, and these are a few new names, but mostly names you know, so that when you start going into other leagues, people will trust your model and trust the idea that a player they've only seen two or three times is a player worth looking at because they come up on this model? Well, you know, the, the model, it's, it's sort of a saliency bias because you look at these lists of names and you say, wow, yeah, okay, I think those are all pretty good players, so the model hopefully is reasonable, and, and then you're going to uh, say, well, yeah, that seems like that's the kind of tool I might like to use. But there are a lot of players who aren't listed here who, if you were just starting from scratch, you might have selected just using the eye. I mean, you don't see Kurt Zuma here. He was eligible to be included. You don't see Ross Barkley. You don't see Saito Berahino. Um, you don't see John Stones. These are players who have a pretty good reputation in the public eye, I would think. And you know, they, they, some of them have even gotten caps for their country. Uh, but they didn't make the list. And part of what makes a model successful is its ability to distinguish uh, both false positives and, or, or sorry, to distinguish uh, positives and negatives, you know, players who become stars and those who won't. Uh, so hopefully uh, the precision of the model will become apparent with time. Um, you know, one player who came very close to selection and probably I could have, if I had rounded, I probably could have put him in was Eric Dyer. Uh, but apart from that, these other folks weren't necessarily that close. So I think this is a good test of the model uh, because uh, we have a pretty good separation between the players who are selected and those who weren't. But yeah, you know, uh, one thing that I say to clubs is you have a ton of expertise already in selecting players. And one of the things that we can do to build trust is to replicate that knowledge and to apply it in as many places as we can. You know, let's say that... Um, you know, you, you work for Newcastle, and, and they have a, a scout who uh, is well-known for looking at the French League and pulling in good players from League One, all right? So what you can do is say, let's train an algorithm to choose the same players in League One that the scout would choose, right? Let's figure out what it is that he sees, what are the markers that, that he finds that lead him to sign a player, and let's teach an algorithm to do exactly the same thing. So now you've got an algorithm that would select the same players in League One as your very successful Newcastle scout. Once you trust it, then you say, okay, we can't cover all the leagues in the world, but there are data covering 30-plus leagues and divisions. So let's set this algorithm loose on those other leagues as well to apply the same criteria, which don't come from the computer. You know, They come from your scout. They are human criteria that you've replicated on a computer. Let's apply them now all over the world, and it'll be almost as though the scout had visited all these leagues and spent all the time viewing these players. So, you know, I sell it first as a tool to leverage the power of the knowledge that you already have. And once we build trust doing that, then maybe we can spend some time allowing the computer to tell you things that maybe you didn't know already. Just as a final wrap-up question, you've been around the analytics scene for a while now. Where do you see it going in three or four years' time from now? Do you see it progressing rapidly, or are we going to reach a more private 
private interest sort of place where a lot of the clubs are holding on to the information. Where do you see the analytics scene in four years from now? And um, are you going to be technical director of Newcastle in three or four, or is it going to be more longer term than that? Oh, well, uh, first of all, I don't think there's any interest in having me as technical director of Newcastle anytime uh, under the current management. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, there may not be any other team who's heard of me anyway, so uh, 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 in, in that part of the world, but uh, who knows. Um, uh, you know, I think that we are already, in some senses, reaching that bottleneck where the work is advancing faster than the demand because, you know, I can think of probably a dozen or a couple of dozen people who are really good at this right now. You know, I've seen their work and I think they do a good job and there are probably more than two dozen big clubs in the world that are interested in analytics. And then, you know, I put those two together and I say, why aren't all those people hired? You know, why, why hasn't the same thing happened in soccer that has already happened uh, in football, in baseball, and more recently to some degree in ice hockey? Why haven't these people, as it's often said, why haven't they been sucked up into the stratosphere <laughs> with their blogs and all their other accoutrements to work for these clubs? Uh, and I think there's just still a gap. You know, there's still a gap in uh, the supply of analytics and the demand. Uh, especially, it, it's especially important because if you're asking somebody to uh, do work in this area, they're probably leaving another job and they want to have the confidence that they're going to get paid well and they're, and they're going to uh, be able to be in a position like that for some time. And, and right now, I don't think there are that many clubs that are offering that kind of pay and that kind of stability for a director of analytics. So, you know, I hope I hope it happens soon. Um, I, I hope it happens soon enough for all the people I'm talking about to get hired. Uh, but I know that the majority of them are sticking with their day jobs. Anything you'd like to plug down before we, uh, you know, say our goodbyes? Well, you know, anybody's welcome to visit the NorthyardAnalytics.com website. The blog is up there. Uh, I write now and then for the New Yorker on soccer analytics as well. And uh, I also uh, post soccer content on foreignpolicy.com from time to time. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm very interested to hear what people think of the work, especially the top prospects posted on the Opta Pro blog this week. And uh, more feedback always helps us to have better ideas. Fantastic. This has been really interesting. So um, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Take care, guys. Bye.